Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Amy Mark scores alongside Michael hey Kelly, filling in for Chris Ranji today on the Chris and Amy show. Well, uh, Michael, you and I were talking about this earlier today, how concerning, disheartening, upsetting it is to Ugh. see this rise of anti-Semitism across the country, across across the globe, some of our leading cultural institutions. And we have a lot of questions about this phenomenon we're seeing. And to shed some light, um, an insight into what's going on, I'm honored to welcome in Yair Rosenberg. He is a staff writer at The Atlantic. He's read his work in The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, among others. And Yair is an expert looking into Jewish history, anti-Semitism around the world. And thank you, Yair, for joining us today. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, I know when I reached out to you a while ago to talk about this issue, uh, you had said, well, it looks like it's not going away anytime um, soon. So let me ask you this. What we've seen after the terrorist attacks on Israelis on October 7th, this rise in anti-Semitism. Is this new anti-Semitism, people who are becoming uh, newly hateful towards Israel or towards Jewish people or not, you know, conflating the two? Um, Or is this something that has been bubbling under the surface looking for a reason to come out? It's a very tricky question. It's, you know, the sort of thing where you can only really know, you you can't really know what's in people's hearts. Um, what I can say is that historically, um, whenever Israel is involved in military conflict, uh, anti-Semitism tends to spike uh, around the world. Uh, and this has been studied by you know, social scientists, and now we have a pretty good record of the fact that these sorts of incidents increase. People start attacking Jews and Jewish institutions, vandalism, physical assaults, all of that stuff. Um, and of course, that's what we've seen, and that's why I said to you that this isn't going to go away, because as long as the war is going on, we can expect to continue to see this. Um, drilling down as to why it happens, um, well, this is a, a kind of a, a deep um, reflection of how prejudice works, um, which is bigots look at a particular, say, minority community, and they say that anyone in that community is collectively responsible and accountable for what anyone else in that community does. Um, so that means that if a bunch of Jews in the Middle East do something I don't like, then I can go attack a bunch of Jews in the United States or in Europe and firebomb their synagogue, right, or beat someone up on the street um, because they're all the same. Um, and that is, of course, not how we would want to be treated as individuals, uh, we ourselves, any person. Um, and it's, of course, you know, not how the majority treats itself, right? The majority never says, well, <laughs> you know, it's like the same idea of like, well, one garbage man did this to me, and so now I, I hate all sanitation workers, right? It's a very strange way of thinking, but it's something that a lot of people give themselves permission to do when talking about Jews, when talking about Muslims sometimes, right? You know, you'll see uh, attacks on mosques. Um, places like Canada and New Zealand over things, you know, that people are upset about, again, in the Middle East. Um, You know, people give themselves permission to do this uh, to minorities and collapse them into a mendacious monolith based on their perceptions of bad acts by other members. So 
whatever you think about Israel, these people really don't like what Israel's doing. And then they see this as justification, right, for attacking Jews everywhere else. And of course, then there are some, right, who just really despise Jews, and therefore they hate anything Israel does, and they also hate any Jews anywhere, but this is a good excuse, right? When they see people are being very mad at Israel, well, that gives them good cover to go after Jews and then claim it's a political statement. Um, and so you have all of those things going on at once, uh, and that leads to the sort of anti-Semitism that we've been seeing. When I Let's talk about the recent congressional testimony of some of our leading academic institutions, Harvard, I think your alma mater, uh, MIT, Penn, and the presidents were questioned by Congress about whether or not they would allow calls for genocide of Jews, allow for those cries to continue on campus and whether or not they saw that as intimidation or as wrong. You obviously know every, you know, what went on with those congressional hearings. What is your take of that situation? So I think that the college presidents were sort of swallowed by a trap of their own making, um, which is they actually gave the technically correct, legally correct answer to the question, which is uh, when somebody says something in a campus setting, whether or not it's harassment, right, or bigotry really depends on the context. Um, this is also true, like when this is a real case that happened, there was a professor who was teaching um, a, a students uh, a class about Chinese stuff and uh, business in China and whatever, and he used the Chinese word that sounded like the N-word. Uh, and this professor got suspended because somebody heard it and thought he said the N-word, but he was saying a Chinese word that had nothing to do with it, right? And so it really does matter what the context of what you say is, what, why you said it and what you meant by it. Um, and so technically that is always the correct answer and universities should be looking into it. But as that example I just gave you shows, universities have not been applying the context and nuance standard to a lot of other statements and utterances on campus. They've actually policed an ever-growing number of sort of microaggressions against particular progressive pieties for quite some time. And so now you have people coming and saying, well, we want the same sort of standard, which is less context, less nuance, more just, you know, if you use certain terms that could be understood this way, that could be subjectively received this way, meaning the effect matters more than the intent of the person speaking, um, then we want that person punished the same way you've been punishing lots of other people. Um, and that's, you know, that the, the college presidents, you know, when they start appealing to neutral principles of context and nuance, but haven't been doing that mm -hmm. previously, it looks like hypocrisy. It looks like bias, not principle. Um, and so they sort of like got, you know, tied up in their own little trap. Um, what, you know, I would like to see is not uh, more, uh, you know, not more restriction of what people can say on campus, whether about this issue or any others, but opening it up and recognizing that uh, college campuses are platforms for people to really debate these issues and try to figure them out. And we should have a more wider understanding and try to really understand people in good faith and what they're trying to say. Um, and if universities really committed to that principle, I think they'd be in a much better shape. Um, you know, it remains to be seen if that's what's going to be the result here or if we're actually going to just see, you know, more rules and more restrictions in different ways, um, which I think won't really solve the problem. Yeah, I, I think there were two takeaways that I had. And, and the first one is what you said about the hypocrisy, because Harvard has its own you know, code of conduct where anything that would be akin to fat phobia or using the wrong pronouns constituted, quote, abuse and, quote, perpetuated violence and how that would not be uh, tolerated on campus. And so, again, using the wrong pronouns was not tolerated. But this call for genocide, well, we need to know the context, seemed to be like flagrant hypocrisy. And the second thing is, isn't there a difference as well between saying offensive speech, perhaps standing in a quad or, uh, you know, in, in, a, in a field, uh, a grassy field in, in the 
on the campus versus actively seeking out Jewish students or saying, hey, Jewish students are studying in the library. We're going to surround the library. To me, that's harassment and intimidation. Yeah, so that actually is, that is, to be fair to them, that's probably what their answer is. When they're saying the context matters, that's an example of context, right? Are you having a rally outside, right? Or are you specifically assailing Jews? Or are you just disrupting classes where their odds are good there will be some Jews in them and preventing people from learning by, you know, taking out foghorns and chanting slogans that could be received in this way? Right? These are all different cases, and they require, like, judgment calls, um, which is why their answer, again, was technically correct, but we've seen this sort of nuanced standard go out the window. Right. When it comes to other issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so like that, exactly that that creates, a, you know, a real, you know, sort of a, a trap uh, for anyone trying to defend university policies right now. Um, and, you know, so that's uh, I think it's unfortunate. Right. I don't think the solution is like, you know, firing college presidents. Um, two of the presidents, for example, the Harvard and Penn president who have gotten the most flack, they both just took the job over the summer. They're basically inheriting a bunch of decisions made by people before them. Now, I'm sure they were part of the system that did that, but it isn't really the case that the presidents are responsible for these things. Yeah, well, right? we, there's an institutional issue, yeah, right? And that's the sort of thing that sometimes gets elided when you put it all on one person. Yeah, but we all witnessed uh, those presentations or responses in Congress, and there just was no excuse for them. I mean, it was a lack of common sense. At the same time, many of my friends who may differ with me uh, on the support of Israel point to situations that are going on in the Middle East and with uh, Palestine and saying, hey, anytime I disagree with the opinions of Jews or Israelis, I'm automatically called anti-Semite. I'm an anti-Semite. Do you see that argument? Um, So people certainly make that objection, and that's part of the reason why there is the call for context, because uh, if you, you know, maybe somebody thought that what you said was anti-Semitic, but does that automatically mean you were, or that you should be suspended on campus, or things like that, right? Or should there be a, you know, a careful examination of what you said and figuring out whether or not it really was anti-Semitic? And so like that, again, I think what the university presidents in their very ham-handed way were trying to preserve, um, but again, because they haven't done this in other situations, it looks a little bit, uh, a little like, like they're picking and choosing where they do that. Um, I think that, you know, to the question that your friends are asking, though, let's take it out of the university context where they're not giving necessarily the best answers. Um, you know, of course, you should be able to criticize uh, the state of Israel. The state of Israel is a, an actual state actor, you know, with an army and with guns, as everyone can tell right now. But it's true all the time. And uh, state actors deserve criticism for what they do with their power, uh, whether it's Israel, the United States, China, many other countries of all different levels and varying backgrounds in human rights. Um, and so no one can tell you that you can't criticize Israel or it's just anti-Semitic uh, just because there happen to be a lot of Jews there. We all now, if, now yeah. But, but we all witness and see hatred. And, and I, this is going to sound foolish, but I mean, I, get, I guess I can understand hatred. I can understand how people don't like somebody to the point that they, you know, hate them. Why is it always the Jews that wind up being hated. And they seem to be hated by people who don't even know who they are. Are there any Jews in China? And apparently that's where most of the anti-Semitism is coming from. So, yeah, there's been some stories about, uh, you know, sort of anti-Semitism on Chinese social media for those who want to, like, Google that and read about what's been going on there. Um, It's a very interesting question about how you can have also anti-Semitism in the absence of Jews. You had that, you know, like Shakespeare's play, Merchant of Venice, is about sort of an anti-Semitic stereotype as the name, you know, one of the main characters. And it's not really clear if Shakespeare ever even met a Jew, right? Yeah. And so, like, it's a very interesting phenomenon. Um, one answer I can give you is that uh, there is a general tendency among human beings, right, to be intolerant of smaller groups, minority groups that are different from them and live differently. Um, and 
Jews have just been around for you know, a really long time, and they've often been that group. In fact, except in the modern state of Israel, right, they're a minority everywhere. And before the modern state of Israel, they were a minority everywhere for quite a long time. Um, and so you have this human tendency not to like people who are different, who don't seem to be like everybody else, right, who often get scapegoated when things go wrong. Because if something goes wrong in your society, you can either look in and say, what choices did we make that made this happen? Or you could say, who did this to us? And it's very easy to say, let's find someone who we can blame who's not like us. Right. And that someone is often the Jews because they were around and they were available. And that creates a lot of historical justifications for persecuting Jews. So if you're somebody who is then looking later on today, say, for a scapegoat for our many economic, social, political problems, uh, and you t- spend a few minutes on Google, right, you're going to find a lot of justifications for why that someone is the Jews, uh, because there's just been so much built up, you know, explaining and arguing that this is who did it. Right. So it's a universal human tendency coupled with Jewish longevity that equals you know, some of this perpetual prejudice. And I know we got to let you go, Yair, but and this is not a, a simple question, but just as, as an observer, when I'm looking at what Israel endures on a daily basis, just like treating rockets like hail, you know, like, well, we'll have the Iron Dome. Well, you know, and we know people around us, everyone around us is trying to shoot rockets or wipe Israel off the map or be openly anti-Semitic, whatever it may be, this, this small country just trying to survive, I feel like is being held to a standard that is higher than we hold any other country, including the United States. I mean, I just can't imagine if Canada were launching missiles into the United States constantly what the U.S. would do. Can I get your take on that? Do you feel that in general... Israel is being held to almost an impossible standard when it comes to defending itself. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. So I'll answer you by saying it's, it's, it's context dependent. How about that? But it depends on like, so in some situations, like the United Nations, there was actually a letter written some years ago by every, signed by every United States senator, including like, you know, everyone from Marco Rubio to Bernie Sanders, um, to the UN Secretary General, um, calling out the UN's uh, basically extraordinarily uneven treatment of Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a country that's been condemned more by, uh, by the UN Human Rights Council than all other countries combined. So consider, you know, China, Saudi Arabia, all these other places, add them all up, still less than the one Jewish state. It's not because Israel is astronomically more evil than all other countries in the world combined. It's because it's more Jewish and it gets treated that way. Um, that being said, as we discussed earlier, there are a lot of criticisms that Israel, like any other state, warrants and merits. Right? And if you cover, you read my journals when I cover from Israel, I've written pretty critically about this current Israeli government and a lot of its policies and past Israeli governments as well. Um, and those are all fair game. And what makes this conversation challenging sometimes is because people have trouble separating one from the other. And people want to think that all of these things are a double standard or that none of them are. Right. But the truth is, sometimes it's a double standard and sometimes it's not. Um, and, you know, that's the sort of thing where people can hold both of those things in mind and then try to examine which one am I dealing with here. Um, and hopefully then we could have a better conversation about it. He is Yair Rosenberg. He writes for The Atlantic. And you have your own column. Is it uh, Deep Shtetl? It's called Deep Shtetl. If you sign up there, you'll get all the things I write in your inbox. Excellent. Excellent. I do get that in my inbox and want to make sure I I said it correctly. Um, Really good stuff from Yair Rosenberg. Thank you so much for your time, Yair. 
Thank you both for having me. Thank you. He is Yaya Rosenberg. And again, Deep Shtetl, you can find his work in The Atlantic. He's Michael Kelly. I'm Amy Mark Scores, and uh, Michael has he's had some issues with Uber drivers. I got to tell you about my Uber experience last night when we come back. You right don't want to miss it on Kim Wex. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app, the biggest sports radio stations in the country, providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams, all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives, streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 